Hey everyone, this is Aspet Bedrosian. And this is Hovik Manucharyan. And we are talking with Gev Iskajian on the latest conditions and events during the Artsakh blockade. Gev is with the ANC in Artsakh, Nagorno-Karabakh. He lives in Stepanagerd. Today is June the 2nd, 2023. This is the 173rd day of the Artsakh blockade. Hey Gev, how are you doing? Hey Gev. Hi Hovik, hi Aspet. I'm doing well, hope you guys are good. Gev, it's been three weeks. I think we last talked on May 11th. We want to know a little bit about the living in humanitarian conditions in Artsakh for the last month. Tell us how the food situation is. And also, because of uh, the extreme blockade at this point with the checkpoints not allowing anyone to go through, what happens when stuff breaks in somebody's home? Um, how do you find the parts and the pieces to get on with life? Good question, Asbed. So in terms of the food situation, it's relatively the same as we last spoke. It's plateaued to a certain degree. Um, I would say, though, a really important thing that you brought up, how do we get, uh, you know, we always talk about food, we talk about medicine, but we don't talk about the supply end of a lot of this stuff. So how do we get vital supplies into the country? If your car breaks down, you need a car part. Nobody manufactures car parts here in Stepanakir. So, you know, uh, that's a loss there. If, let's say, something happens with your heater, something happens with your plumbing, something happens with your house, something exactly. happens in a business that relies on uh, mechanical equipment, uh, that's been added near zero. There's a certain uh, plant here, a factory here, that employs a good amount of workers, and what they make are those uh, the tubing that people use for a- agriculture that the water flows through. So for that tubing, they need actual like plastics and certain chemicals and materials. If that stuff isn't coming in, not only are those workplaces and businesses not operating on top of it, but those people don't have jobs. There's a socioeconomic effects to this. So your car breaks down, you can't get to work, certain chemicals, certain products, materials that so many of the businesses that operate here rely on can't get to work. Not only are, is the population denied of that stuff, but you also have a drawback where unemployment rises and all those other issues that are tied to it as well. Gev, yeah, it's been more than two weeks since Pashinyan, in the clearest of terms, uh, stated that he recognizes Artsakh as part of Azerbaijan. I, I can never get myself to say that, but how is that affecting the morale of the people? I mean, it's yeah. it's a ludicrous thing to say, and it's messing with all of our identities, but I think the most affected by this are people who are in Artsakh themselves, who have been bearing the brunt of being Artsakh and being Armenian for the rest of the Armenian population worldwide for the last 35 years, only to be told that they're now uh, Aliyev's property. Uh, how do people feel? How are they motivating themselves to resist? Yeah, so I think if you're, you know, careful with what the words that Pashinyan has been saying, not just for the last two weeks, but over the, I would say more than a year, he's been making the same yeah. exact statement in various ways. So it first started with, we're ready to, to recognize everyone's territorial integrity, right? And then he actually went more specific. He's like, we're ready to recognize X and X kilometers of square kilometers of Azerbaijani territory and X and X square kilometers of Armenian territory. And obviously, in those parameters, he's including Artsakh within Azerbaijan. So what the civil contract party has been doing, what uh, Pashinyan has been doing, he's made this statement a long time ago. Now he's slowly 
concretely leaking it out. So in terms of the effect of the, on the populace, I would say they've had that effect almost a year ago because they're more acutely aware to those words than, let's say, the general population maybe in Armenia or in the diaspora because this directly affects our homes uh, where we live. So I would say the effect should be more shocking and I would say reverberating throughout the diaspora, throughout Armenia, for people that have been waiting for him to concretely say it, people that have been making excuses, people that have been uh, apologists to what he's saying. He's outright stated it within like square kilometers there. But in terms of for the people here, I think uh, that this has unfortunately been a reality. This has been an acute reality for them for a while. At the same time, it seems like as part of this choreographed so-called negotiations process, Aliyev made some statements about a week ago where he basically said, if uh, Araik Haritsunyan resigns, if Artsakh dismantles all of its state institutions and symbols, and if essentially uh, Araik surrenders and everyone else sort of asks for forgiveness from the oil sultan of Baku, then he might consider magnanimously uh, giving people amnesty so they can become loyal Azerbaijani citizens. Obviously, in those terms, it was more a threat, uh, an overt threat than anything else, because he's, he also said the option of military operations in Artsakh is always a possibility. He also threatened Armenia. I always wanted to know, basically, I think that the entire hope of the Armenian nation is on Artsakh to be able to resist uh, Aliyev. And if something starts, I mean, we can do everything we can here. And I'm sure that besides the few traders that we have at the top, the Armenian nation will try everything to come to the aid of Artsakh. What I'm wondering is, within Artsakh, how are the people motivated to fight? And specifically, you know, we also heard the United States State Department saying that, you know, oh, we welcome Aliyev's uh, grant of, or sort of consideration of amnesty. It seems that also diplomatically, Aliyev has the upper hand, at least with the West, mm-hmm. maybe even Europe. Yeah. What are your thoughts about... I know these are like, you know, I don't want to spread panic, but like some potential very serious yeah. scenarios, either an attack by Aliyev overtly or a wider yeah. military conflagration in the region. Yeah. So let's start with the last point. I think one, uh, whether it's United States or the f- folks in Brussels, to them and even to Anthony Blinken, uh, especially they viewed this as a career PR moment. Everybody wants to be able to solve a crisis somewhere in the world. Secretaries of state want to do that, too. Unfortunately, I think Blinken is so uh, bullish on pushing this deal forward. Every consideration has been made for him except that of the livelihood and the people of Artsakh. So I think at any cost, and this is what we need to be really wary of, these foreign governments want to see a deal done here. And unfortunately, Artsakh doesn't have the same cards that Azerbaijan has in terms of force, military force, and uh, all those other tools at its disposal. And we have a completely ineffective Armenian government on that end. So you're absolutely right. Gavin Artsakh, does anyone think that Pashinyan has a mandate or even the right to give away Artsakh or dissolve its government? No. If we're talking about the wide, vast majority of the population, no. And also you're talking about people that post-war have chosen to uh, either come back here or to remain here. They have a huge stake in this game. So mm-hmm. nobody is, uh, you know, okay with that fact. I think what our aim is, what our goal is, one, not to give in to any concessions in terms of 
uh, Aliyev saying, you guys need to dismantle, you guys need to disband, blah, blah, blah. Those are the first steps of integration for him. The statements from the parliament leadership in Artsakh are strong. How is the morale of the common citizen uh, on the ground? I would say, look, it's it, it remained the same, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, what I mean by remains the same is I, I think that people know I don't see this like mass panic throughout the populace saying like, oh, my God, this is the end. We got to find a way to go, blah, blah, blah. Folks are still here. Folks are still living through this blockade, living through all these difficulties uh, because they understand what we're fighting for here. Mm, OK, this morning or yesterday, there was a report that Artsakh men are not being allowed to travel through the Azeri yes. checkpoint if they suspect that the man has participated in Artsakh wars. Well, so this is, in a sense, every man in Artsakh. Yeah, and this is actually something that we heard from. The first time I heard this was not from uh, government members here. It wasn't for political pundits. It was actually residents of Artsakh, the, the common folk, the layman here. Uh, before all of this started, when they put up that checkpoint, people said that, look, what they're going to do is whoever they want, they're going to mark as a quote-unquote separatist. They're going to mark as a quote-unquote terrorist. And they're going to uh, go after the people specifically that have fought in either the last war or in the first war. Mm -hmm. And they're going to selectively pick and choose these people. They're either going to deny them entry or they're going to arrest them. And then this is what we've been trying to get across to when I get on calls with congressmen and senators. This point, this notion that Azerbaijan is just setting up a customs checkpoint. It's it's all, you know, fine and dandy. It's an innocent thing. It's like absolutely not. They're one, they're legitimately cutting off. Armenia from Artsakh. And secondly, they're controlling everyone that goes in and out of that place. So that human factor that we don't talk about often, the fact that they can grab anyone at any time and arrest them, uh, this, is a right. this is a real grave concern. People who know Azerbaijan have uh, warned us that these checkpoints are basically a place to officially kidnap Armenians and make them disappear. Exactly. Yeah, and uh, even though probably, I, I mean, I, I think they'll gradually increase their level of callousness i think that maybe right now like they want to still see, seem uh more humane so they are just like checking pa paperwork but yeah nothing is stopping them from arresting and uh Aspen, i think we should also mention that for many weeks i think after they set up a checkpoint even icrc could not go through so even supplies weren't going through but now it appears that they're allowing the icrc both like in terms of people and supplies, you know, people who need medical care. We should talk about this. You know, it's, it's, it's not that like people are choosing to go through. It's people who, who need urgent medical care that they can't get in Artsakh are seeking to go into Yerevan to get treated. And their identity is being checked by Azerbaijan and they're being denied to leave. And yes, eventually that could turn into kidnapping. Gev, so missing in this conversation that we're having today is Russia. And about a month ago, the new head of the Russian peacekeeping mission, General Lentsov, came in, if you recall. Mm. And we decided to wait until this conversation to kind of decide whether he's made a difference, uh, if the Russian MO has changed. Have you noticed any kind of a difference in Russian attitude towards either side of this conflict? Yeah. So on the positive end of the spectrum, what, what, I, what I've noticed in the last month is we haven't given a certain concession. Uh, if you guys remember during the other 
general that was here week to week, you would hear something. The Azerbaijan set up a checkpoint. Azerbaijan's firing into this area, and they're still doing their shootings and blah blah blah. But uh, what I've been noticing throughout the last few weeks, usually it used to be the residents of Arsakh that would report a breach in the ceasefire and then report it to the peacekeepers. Now the peacekeepers are, uh, before anyone says anything, confirming uh, these uh, ceasefire breaches, and they're the ones uh, reporting on it. Secondly, I would say that, it's, again, another uh, positive. If you guys remember in the beginning, a couple of weeks ago, there, were, there was even trouble for the Russian peacekeepers to get in. There was trouble with the Red Cross getting in and out. That stuff has been alleviated to a degree. So the Red Cross is moving in and out. The peacekeeping trucks are bringing in a certain amount of aid, and it hasn't been halted yet. Again, not a ton of great news. I haven't seen any drastic major changes, but I haven't seen the bleeding get worse. Okay. But regardless, I wanted to mention that both Russia and Azerbaijan are in breach of the November 2020 trilateral ceasefire agreement. Absolutely. Because any way you look at the situation, there is not free movement of Armenians through the lodging Bertram corridor. Aspen, in all fairness, I think that you mentioned Russia and Azerbaijan, but you forgot to mention the third party of that November 9-10 agreement, Armenia, which has at many times officially acknowledge things that would put Russia in a difficult position. For instance, uh, acknowledging that Artsakh is Azerbaijan. I think that, you know, I don't want to excuse Russia, and definitely they have their own responsibility in all of this, but it is Armenia that has sort of also uh, relinquished all of its responsibility in that contract. Basically, it, says, it has said that uh, whatever happens in Artsakh is Russia's problem, and that is specifically... Uh, Pashinyan's uh, thesis is that, you know, it's Russia's responsibility and we're withdrawing completely. Uh, obviously, yeah. I mean, Russia has its own interests in Artsakh and uh, it has also a war to fight. But... Yeah, look, and, and if I may add, the criticism of the Armenian government is absolutely valid here, um, especially in regards to when you're talking about Pashinyan saying this is uh, Azerbaijan's territory. And Azerbaijan saying, okay, well, if you're going to say it's my territory, I have all right to set up a customs checkpoint. Mm-hmm. However, I also think that the Russian peacekeepers have a certain degree of responsibility because the border, this corridor was closed before they set up a checkpoint, before those uh, statements that Pashinyan made. So, yeah, at times, look, to, to say that the Russian peacekeeping contingency hasn't been at best lackadaisical, that would be, you know, not true. They have. They've been very lackadaisical. I guess what we're saying here is that all three parties have not honored and are in breach of the November 2020 agreement, which is basically not worth the paper it's printed on. And in the case of Armenia, this includes relinquishing positions and authority in a manner that have compromised Russia's ability to meet its responsibilities. All right, let's leave it there for today, Gev. It was great talking with you. Let's talk again soon. Good catching up with you guys. We'll speak soon. Thank you, Jeff.